Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. A while back, I was in another town, another city over the weekend, and I decided to visit a church I'd not been to before and hear a sermon from a, from a pastor I'd not heard preach before. Now, when an old homiletics professor goes to listen to a sermon, it's a little like a chef going out to eat. I have to remind myself not to critique the sermon. My goal is not to critique the meal, but to consume, to be fed. Uh, this, was, this was different, and, and so it took some, frankly, it took some work to not uh, be too critical. But at one point in his sermon, he said something that at first made me sort of cock my head like my dog does when I make a strange noise and he looks at me trying to figure out what what that is. And and then as he went on to explain what he meant, uh, it went from a cocked head to a furrowed brow. And the more I thought about it, the more upset I got. This is a relatively new church. And he was explaining that when they first started, he has a small staff, and that at the office he had a dollar jar for anyone who said a Christian swear word. And immediately I thought, uh-oh, what are Christian swear words, and am I guilty of saying them? He went on to explain that those are words that unbelievers don't understand because they're used exclusively in church. And our goal is to relate to unbelievers, to draw them to Christ, and if we use those technical terms that Christians use, we can't be effective. And so to, to discourage that, that, he had this dollar swear jar. Okay, I understand. I understand that we want to be able to relate to unbelievers and, and not use a bunch of those Christian technical terms that they don't understand, that that's not effective. But within the context of the local church, and especially within the context of the church offices, I ought to be able to use those words and have them understand, understood. You'll recall that in the very last episode, we talked about Christian illiteracy. And one of the things that bothers me is that we can't use some of these terms because not only do unchurched people not understand them, too many believers have no idea what they mean. And I'm specifically referring uh, at, in this context to what are sometimes called salvation terms, words related to the doctrines of salvation or soteriology, speaking of Christian swear words. Words like redemption, propitiation, salvation, atonement, and our word for today, our J word, justification. How many of those words can you uh, define or at least understand what they mean when you hear them? That's what I'm talking about. And so this morning's episode, morning, it's morning as I'm recording this, today's episode is about uh, Christian illiteracy and fixing one little tiny corner of that by talking about the word justification. Those uh, five words I just read off. First, let's note that some of them are Godward and some are manward. And what I mean by that is, for example, salvation. We are saved, and so salvation is manward. God is propitiated. It is a Godward dynamic. And again, if you don't know propitiation, that's okay. That's a more difficult one. And in fact, I won't be at all surprised if that shows up as our P word, although we've got lots of good options. 
So some of these words are man word and some of them are God word. And as it turns out, justification is man word. Uh, the word group occurs, f word group, cognates. Do you remember we talked about cognates before when we talked about, uh, I think it was forgiveness. Um, the cognates of the, of the verb justification, dikaiao, occur 40 times in the New Testament in 26 different forms. Um, a verb, an adjective, but then the various kinds of adjectives, objective, subjective, all of those, okay? So, it's a major word in the New Testament. If you, th if you consider 40 times in the books of the New Testament, that's a lot. It, the verb form normally occurs in the passive voice. That's because we are justified. It is an action that God does to us. The dog, our dog, was bathed this week. He didn't bathe himself. I gave him a bath. First, I butchered, his, I butchered him with our first ever haircut. And then I bathed him. And so the passive voice means that it's one of the forms in Greek, and it means something was done to or for or at someone else. So I bathed the dog. The dog got bathed. I ate my breakfast. That's active. Now, if I was an invalid and could not do that, I would be fed. That would be passive. Okay? Because it's man word, and it is an action that God does, it is manward and typically occurs in the passive voice. There's an interesting exception to that in the Gospels. It says that the Pharisees sought to justify themselves. That's reflexive because they're doing it to themselves. So that's the first thing to understand, that it is manward, which is why the verb form usually occurs in the passive voice. It is also, and, and this is the big thing here, I, I, I hope that you really grab onto, it is a forensic term. Do you recall that when we were doing F is for forgiveness, we talked about that as a forensic uh, word, a forensic thing that happens. Uh, forensic means, again, that it is a, it happens in the context of the courts. It is a legal thing. It is not so much practical as it is positional, Okay. Salvation and redemption have more to do with the wor world of actions and behaviors, um, implications that occur in life. Justification is forensic. It is a legal dynamic. It happens in the courts. It is, I, I read one commentator describe it as declarative. It is something that happens by action. It is action by, I'm sorry, it is something that happens by fiat. It is action done by decree. And so someone is justified. That has, although, although we're going to modify this a little bit in a few minutes, that has no immediate implications or applications to my daily life. It is a positional thing. So let's remember that justification is a forensic uh, transaction where God makes a decree, and because, and because he's God, it is true because he decrees it. That's what we mean by fiat. Before it was an Italian car, it was a Latin word that meant a decree that automatically takes effect. A sovereign ruler issues a fiat, and God declares us justified, and therefore we are. That, that's another interesting thing, frankly. Of those words, that, that the list that I gave you at the beginning, 
um, is to think about all the things that happen at the absolute instant of my salvation. Regeneration, uh, propitiation, all of these things, all those words, and more, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All of these things happen in that nanosec... My father-in-law, Pam's dad, was a nuclear chemist, and I felt good because I knew the word nanosecond, but then he introduced me to words like picosecond, and if I remember correctly, a picosecond is one hundredth of a nanosecond, and then he had more to get it narrow. In the absolute twinkling of an eye, a whole bunch of things that uh, happened to me at the moment of my salvation, and one of them is justification. Okay, let's understand then the forensics, uh, the forensic things that happen with that instant with regards to justification. The first thing to understand is that I enter this moment in time with guilt because of my sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now that's King James because I memorized that verse as a kid. It may have been the first verse I memorized. I don't know. Um, It is a truth and there is more buried in there than I realized as a four or a five-year-old. All have sinned, what is sin, and fallen short of the glory of God. That is to say, the standard for guilt is any deviation from God's glory and his perfection. And, and, and there aren't degrees of perfection, so it's ridiculous to say God's total perfection. There's nothing other than total perfection. If there is, it's imperfect. God is totally, I just did it, totally righteous and holy and perfect in the fullest, most infinite sense of the term. Any deviation from that, any violation of his holiness is described as sin. And and so we are all sinners because we have all deviated from God's absolute standard of righteousness. We live in a world of relativism, and so we grade sins. And, and we've identified falsely some sins as worse than others. Okay, some of them are worse in the sense of their impact on life. They bring more harm. And so in that subjective sense, they are worse. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the sins of adultery and drunkenness and so forth and describes them as especially serious. But that's because of the effect they have in life But in terms of their deviation from the norm of God's absolute holiness, they are not, uh, no sin is worse than another. If I commit one, what we would call, insignificant sin, a white lie as though lies came in colors, I am still a sinner. However, that is not the problem. My sinful behaviors, as it turns out, are not the problem. Excuse me. Okay, now hang with me here because I'm going to get technical for just a minute. But you're clever. You can handle this. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and of course we understand that is Adam, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, here's where it gets technical. That last phrase, Death spread to all men because all sinned. Do you notice that that is a past tense verb? And 
Because Greek has a couple of different ways to express action in the past, it's important to know that this is an aorist tense in the past. And the aorist is a, is a particular form. You add particular letters to the front and the back that says, okay, this verb is indicative and aorist. Aorist action in the past is point action. I've mentioned that I'm learning uh, Portuguese. And Portuguese has passado, which is past tense. But it also has prerreto imperfeito, which is imperfect past tense. Uh, and and one of them means a point in the past, and the other means continuous action in the past. My Portuguese teacher described it as a habit. When I was a child, I enjoyed riding my bike. That is a habit in the past. As opposed to, I rode my bike to the store. That would be point action in the past. And in Greek, the aorist refer in the indicative refers to point action in the past. Now, I'm going to read this again, and I want you to understand that that last phrase is an aorist. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because, here comes the aorist, <clears throat> all sinned. Past tense and aorist. At what point in the past did we all sin? He's answered that question. He answered that question when he said death passed to all men because one of us sinned. And who was that one? It was Adam. When Adam sinned in the garden, he was what theologians call our seminal head. We were, we were in the seminal sense, all in Adam. We are all physiological descendants of Adam. And when Adam sinned, he was changed. And all of his descendants went from innocent to sin. And so we've, our, our over 50, I was thinking this morning, I can't remember, it's 51 or 52 years of marriage. I think it's 51. Um, anyhow, we have almost always had a dog. We couldn't when we lived in an apartment. But the rest of the time, we've almost always had a dog. Um, and we enjoy dogs. We've got one now. His name's Toby and he's a Brittany, Brittany Spaniel. And he's got a stubby little tail. Uh, Brittany's come one of two ways they're both considered acceptable for show purposes, a little stubby tail and a long feathered tail like an Irish setter. Dogs wag their tails. Okay, um, Toby weighs, uh, wags his stubby little tail. Samson, this half black lab, half Irish setter, magnificent looking dog, weighed, uh, I'm sorry, wagged his giant feathered tail. He could clear a coffee table with one swipe with this tail. Did Samson uh, wag his tail because he was a dog? Or was he a dog because he wagged his tail? That turns out to be a very important theological question. Am I a sinner? Am I guilty because I sin? Or do I sin because I'm a sinner? And the answer is the latter. I sin because I am, as a descendant of Adam, a sinner. I inherited that sin nature from Adam. And so when I sin, I am doing nothing more in, in, before my salvation. As, as a, uh, before I was saved, when I sinned, I was doing nothing more than wagging my tail. I was doing what sinners do. I was acting out my nature. I got that nature from Adam. And so 
I get my guilt from Adam. And that doesn't mean that I'm innocent of my acts of sin. It means that there are, what, two dimensions to my guilt. But the, but the forensic guilt that I have before God as an unbeliever, before I'm a child of God, the forensic guilt that I have, the judicial, the courtroom guilt that I have, has come down to me from Adam. And the only way to solve that problem is to solve that guilt problem. You see, I, that's, that's another reason I cannot behave my way into heaven. I can live the most ascetic, the most disciplined life I'm capable of living. You and I both know I will still sin. I can try to get my dog to stop wagging his tail. I can say to Samson, who clears the coffee table, or when the boy, we had Samson when the boys were toddlers, and frankly, he would knock them off their feet with his tail. And I could scold them, I scold Samson, and I could say, Samson, stop that. But you know that dog, he just had the most indomitable nature. He was happy 24-7. All the time he was happy. And if I would scold him in my meanest dad voice and shake my finger at him, he would look up at me and just wag his tail bigger because he was happy that we were interacting like that. I could tell you stories. Drove me crazy. I could not shame that dog. He was incapable of putting his tail between his legs. It just wagged. Why? Because he was a dog. It was his nature to wag his tail. And I didn't do this, okay? I don't want you to think I did this, but let's just, as a matter of illustration, let's say I had cut off Samson's tail. Not just the nub like our dog Toby has, but completely removed the tail. What would Samson have done? I'll tell you what he would have done. He would have wagged his butt. Why? Because it is nature to wag his rear end. He wagged his tail because he was a dog, and it is a dog's nature. And I sin because it is my nature. Now, again, I'm talking about my pre-conversion experience. I sin because it is my nature. And here in Romans 5.12, Paul explains that our guilt, back to forensic, okay? My judicial guilt before God comes from my sin nature, which I get from Adam. I am born, you understand now, see, I am born in sin. I, now, okay, I don't know if you've ever ha had, we have not, I don't know if you've ever had brand new puppies, although we've had friends who do, and we go over to see the adorable little things, and they lay there with their eyes still closed and all cuddled up in a, a bunch of them, all cuddled up together, keeping each other warm. And then they wake up, and it's time to eat, and they snuggle up to mom. I don't know how they find her with their eyes closed, but they do. And they don't do anything except eat and sleep and poop, okay? So it's what, six or eight weeks before a puppy opens his eyes? And and a puppy at when their eyes are closed, and a puppy once their eyes open, they don't wag their tails. They don't do that yet. I don't know how old a puppy is before he starts wagging his tail. But it doesn't happen automatically. It does and so we say we, we see somebody's newborn. Oh, isn't that adorable? What an innocent little baby. There will come a time when your little baby is not so innocent. Wrong. That baby came out of the womb. David says in Psalm fifty one, In sin did my mother conceive me. And again, he's not talking about any misbehavior on the part of his mother. He's saying from the point of conception, he had a sin nature that all humans do. And when David was an infant, when I was an infant, I couldn't wag my tail, but nobody had to teach me how to wag my tail. I figured it out on my own. It wasn't long before my nature came out 
through temper tantrums and, and before I could speak, I know I was throwing temper tantrums because we all do. It is our nature to sin. And that is the origin of my forensic now, forensic guilt before God. And the sins, sinful acts that I commit are nothing more than expression of my nature. I sin because I'm a sinner. Now, it may strike you as unfair that we inherit the guilt from Adam of his sin, that that nature was transferred to us. Shouldn't we have had the same chance that Adam had to get it right or to get it wrong? I'm sorry if that bothers you, but that's the way God made it. And frankly, he's in charge. And so that's the way it is. Learn to deal with it. Um, <laughs> I am a McDonald. I am the descendant of McDonald's. I am a Scotsman. Now, I'm three-quarter Scandinavian. I am half Swedish, quarter Norwegian, and a quarter Scottish. But if you saw me, you would see a Scotsman. I am tall and thin and have a, a narrow face. I have a big nose and big ears. And those latter two things I inherited from my father, who inherited them from his grandfather. And if you saw a picture, you'd understand. That is the McDonald mark. And I wish it weren't true, but it is. And it makes no difference whether I accept that as truth or not. It is truth. It is God's truth. The Bible is both inspired and inerrant, and it is true that I inherited my sin nature from Adam. We were all in Adam, and for as in one man all die, why? Because we inherited his sin nature, so in one man, Christ, shall we all be made alive, 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, there is the guilt that I have before God, and it behooves me to understand that guilt. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And that takes us back to Adam, okay? Uh, as a child, I read that verse and thought, uh-oh, that's like when I back-talked my mother. Um, I've sinned. No. All have sinned. In Adam we all sinned and fall short of God's infinite glory. And that's what constitutes sin. Romans 5.12, uh, we all sinned. Aorist tense. We all did that in Adam. And this is confirmed by our own actions. That then makes this absolute and objective judicial guilt before a righteous God. Now, because God is righteous, he must judge sin with its prescribed penalty, and its prescribed penalty is death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 we would love for God to be able to say, Ollie, Ollie, oxen free. Okay, I really like you. In fact, I really love you. And so I'm going to forgive your debt. We can do that, right? We can write off a debt because we love someone or, or even just like them. God cannot do that because if a righteous judge doesn't judge uh, unrighteousness, he is no longer righteous. He is tolerant of unrighteousness and is not himself righteous. Therefore, the consequences of our sin in Adam, never mind the confirmation of that nature in our own actions, is the punishment of death. That is the required punishment. Years ago, there was a, a TV show, Kojak. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember that. And I think it was Kojak who said, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. That was one of the lines that showed up often in the, in the script. Okay, 
Uh, we did the crime. We did the crime in Adam. And then again, we confirm it with our own actions. Th- that crime for which we sit under the sentence of death is our sin in Adam. Um, but again, we have all confirmed that. But what this does, by the way, is explain to, uh, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, and I'm not charging you for this part. Um, this explains why infants die. Think of the puppy who is so young he cannot wag his tail. Think of the infant so young that they cannot confirm their sin nature by sinful actions and they still die and death entered because of one man's sin. They also have a sin nature and it is that that brings about the judgment of death. So we've come to the end of part one and I sure hope you'll continue on to part two because we haven't talked about justification yet, have we? We've discussed the problem, but not God's solution. How is it that he can issue a decree that that justifies us? And that's part two. So again, thank you for your patience. Hang with me, move on to part two. Let's continue.